Section 30 of the English Restoration and Louis the Fourteenth by Osmond Airy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 22. The Peace of Nijmegen, Part 2. 4. Expected Renewal of War. Another Treaty of England with the Dutch. Separate Peace between Louis and the Dutch in promising to give back to spain the towns which were to form her barrier louis had avoided pledging himself to do so as a preliminary to peace though this was understood by the dutch and the spaniards he now demurred to giving them up until the demands of sweden should be satisfied this would have compelled the dutch to maintain a large army on the isle when their greatest desire was to disband in a moment the provinces were in a blaze and william regained his ascendancy though every one now longed for peace the fortunes of war had been so evenly balanced that any unexpected pretension on one side or the other was sufficient to throw all into confusion charles underwent the same revulsion of feeling he refused to ratify his secret treaty with louis or to disband his troops in the spanish low countries declaring that his people would chase him from his kingdom if louis were suffered to extend his conquests he sent off temple once more july sixth in haste to make a strict alliance with the republic and on july twenty sixth a treaty was framed binding the dutch to continue the struggle and england to declare war if louis by august eleventh did not declare himself ready to give up the town at once louis had thus fifteen days wherein to settle the question upon which depended the breaking up of the coalition or the immediate renewal of war day by day the interval passed without an answer from louis he could not bring himself to break through his rule of fidelity to his alliances at length he was set free by the action of the swedes themselves one of their deputies took upon himself to declare that sweden would raise no objection to a separate peace if the republic promised not to assist her foes louis thereupon ordered the treaty to be signed on condition that spain should make a similar engagement regarding both himself and his allies this demand led to further delay and on the ninth within a day of the stipulated time all was still in doubt when at ten on the next morning they met for the last conference the french commissioners colbert estrade and avaux felt how vast were the issues depending upon that day's work carefully as the exhaustion of france was kept from the knowledge of europe they knew that the continuation of war would be a terrible calamity for their country and that louis haughty as might be his language had probably reached the limits of what it was possible for him to conquer at the time they knew too that temple had arrived the evening before at nijmegen to frustrate if possible in concert with william the conclusion of peace for thirteen hours the conference sat continuously colbert and his colleagues fought the ground inch by inch against the settled will of william and the states-general only one hour before the moment at which negotiations would cease at eleven on the night of august tenth sixteen seventy eight france and the republic signed the treaty which removed the most important member from the coalition and gave the signal for its disruption by this treaty louis confessed afresh 
the complete failure of his war of aggression on the Dutch. The patient republic came out of the six years' struggle without the loss of an acre of land. The sum of her concessions was a promise of neutrality during the remainder of the war. Untouched in their territory, the Dutch were also secured in their main interest, commerce. Freedom of trade and navigation were mutually restored, and the compulsory visitation of the warships of either nation in each other's harbours removed, while all vexatious restrictions on Dutch subjects residing or trading in France were taken off. Each might henceforth trade with the enemies of the other, if properly provided with a passport, except in articles contraband of war, or in the language of international law, a free ship was to cover the merchandise, but all goods on an enemy's ship should be liable to confiscation. The personal interests of William were provided for by the restoration of his Principality of Orange, and of all the estates belonging to him in France, Franche-Comté, the Charolais, and the Spanish Low Countries. Spain and any other of the Allies who within six weeks from the ratification should declare themselves ready to accept peace, were to be admitted as parties to the treaty. Strange to say, the peace was signalized by the most desperate engagement of the war. William, with all the forces he could collect, had marched to succor Mons, then invested by the Duke of Luxembourg. On August 14th he arrived before the French lines. Luxembourg knew that peace was concluded. William had certainly no official knowledge, but the probability of events must be set against his emphatic declaration that he had no information whatever. He determined to strike one more blow at Louis, and, if possible, to destroy his own unbroken record of defeat in the field. By an impetuous attack upon Luxembourg's lines, he for a while carried all before him. But the hunchbacked dwarf, rallied his forces, and delivered so fierce a counterstroke that after six hours of murderous conflict he regained the captured positions. At the close of a long day of slaughter, Luxembourg still held Mons in his grip, while William, though he had failed in his main object, remained on the field of battle. The next morning the official declaration of peace arrived, and at the same hour by arrangement the two armies left Mons, the French retreating toward At, the Dutch to Brussels. 5. Peace with Spain The treaty was not binding until it had been ratified. To prevent this ratification, William and Temple strained every nerve. They were supported by the indignant reproaches of the allies whom the Republic had thus deserted, Denmark, Brandenburg, the Emperor, and the Bishop of Munster. Spain, too, put obstacles in the way. The States-General hereupon adjourned the ratification until the peace with Spain was signed, acting meanwhile as mediators. But the internal troubles of Spain robbed her of all real desire to continue the war. The boy-king, Charles II, had assumed the government at the age of fourteen on November 6, 1675, but the power remained with the Queen-Regent. She, in turn, delivered it into the hands of Fernando Valenzuela, a worthless favorite of the type of Piers Gaveston or Robert Carr. A rise of the nobles took place in consequence, 
and the king's natural brother don john came into power though charles remained nominally king the favourite was banished and the queen fled don john in turn soon found himself in the midst of difficulties and was anxious to be free from the additional complications of the war louis informed of the activity of the emissaries of william who were inveighing in every town of the province of holland against the dishonour brought upon the nation and of the mission of lawrence hyde from the king of england with an engagement to declare war three days after he knew that the states-general had refused to ratify the treaty determined with his usual good sense not to endanger the advantages he had acquired on september seventeenth the peace was signed with spain france gave back charleroi binch at audenarde and courtrai which she had gained by the peace of aix-la-chapelle the town and duchy of Limbourg, all the country beyond the meuse ghent rodenhuis and the district of the vaise leuze and saint ghislain with Pouge-Cerda in catalonia these having been taken since that peace but she retained franche-comte with the towns of valenciennes bouchain Condé, Cambrai, and the Cambrai-Si, Saint-Omer, Ypres, Vervic, Varneton, Poperinga, Bayeul, Kessel, Bavai, and Maubuge. The signature of this treaty was followed by the ratification of that with the Dutch. The Spaniards, however, with their ingrained love of delay, attempted, when the date came, October 31st, for the ratification of their own treaty to put it off until that with the emperor was signed louis held his hand for a month then thoroughly provoked he ordered his troops to march upon brussels this brought the spaniards to their senses and on december fifteenth the ratifications were exchanged six peace with the emperor and the rest of the allies there remained the grand elector of brandenburg and the king of denmark the dukes of brunswick and luneberg the bishop of munster and the emperor the two first whose operations were chiefly against sweden at the point farthest from louis and who were gaining successes there did their best though now deprived of the subsidies of the united provinces to prevent the emperor from coming to terms with france and sweden he however had conclusive reasons for wishing to make peace he had in the last campaign seen the young duke of lorraine thoroughly beaten by Crequy, who besides preventing the capture of freiberg had taken kehl ruppelschau landau and lichtenberg and had destroyed the bridge at strasbourg the hungarians too had risen against him and with the support of bodies of troops raised in poland and officered by frenchmen had gained alarming successes on the border on february second sixteen seventy nine peace was declared between louis the emperor and the empire louis gave back philippsburg retaining freiburg with the desired liberty of passage across the rhine to breisach in all other respects the treaty of munster october twenty fourth sixteen forty eight was re-established if the enemies of sweden would not make peace the emperor and the empire would neither assist them nor allow them to encamp on the territory of the empire outside their own dominions while louis should be free to keep garrisons in several towns of the empire the treaty then dealt with the duke of lorraine to his restoration louis annexed conditions which rendered lorraine 
little more than a French province. Not only was Nancy to become French, but in conformity with the Treaty of 1661, Louis was to have possession of four large roads traversing the country, with half a league's breadth of territory throughout their length, and the places contained therein, the roads namely from Saint-Dizier to Nancy, and from Nancy to Alsace, Vesoul in Franche-Comté, and Metz. The town and district of Longuy also were to be placed in his hands. To these conditions the Duke refused to subscribe, preferring continual exile, until the peace of Reichweg in 1697, when at length his son regained the ancestral estates. On the same day the Emperor and the Empire made peace with Sweden. All that the Allies had taken from her was to be restored, and the Emperor agreed to mediate between her and the powers that still stood out. It was impossible for the other members of the coalition to carry on the war. The Dukes of Brunswick and Lüneburg the Bishop of Munster surrendered their captures in Sweden, retaining one or two places which rectified their frontiers. Each received from Louis a subsidy for the concession. It needed, however, a final exhibition of force before Brandenburg and Denmark would give way. Kriki again passed the Rhine and took Mark and Liebstadt, then crossed the Weser, defeated the Grand Elector, and threatened Magdeburg. On June 29th, the Grand Elector consented to make restitution to Sweden, except on the Brandenburg side of the Oda, promising to build no fortress on that river. Denmark, left alone, made peace with France and Sweden in September on similar terms, and separate treaties were also concluded between Sweden, Spain, and the Republic. The Dutch, who in accordance with the Treaty of 1673 should have restored Maastricht to Spain, retained that important bulwark, as a recompense for their efforts in securing the barrier for the latter country. 7. Conclusion The effect of the Peace of Nijmegen was thus speaking generally to reaffirm the Peace of Westphalia. But inasmuch as Louis, though foiled in the immediate purpose of the war, was the only gainer, it did not, like the Peace of Westphalia, close for any length of time the sources of strife, but while affording to France a basis for future aggrandizement, left sore feelings everywhere with the certainty of renewal of war. One country alone, or rather one person, had come out of the struggle with marked discredit. The position of Charles II of England was indeed contemptible. Peace had been made without his concurrence, in spite indeed of his utmost efforts. He had lived by chicanery, and his chicanery had ended in complete discomfiture. Louis, now neither needing nor fearing him, met his appeal for part at least of the money he claimed with a contemptuous refusal. In December 1678 the Lords united with the Commons in insisting on his immediately disbanding his troops, and from that moment, baffled in diplomacy and crippled for war, he had no further voice in continental affairs. His position with his own people was as humiliating as his position in the face of Europe. To the Parliament and to the Church he was an object of suspicion. His supplies were doled out with jealous parsimony, and his use of the money was vigilantly watched. From the control under which he fretted, his only chances of escape had been trickery and foreign alms. 
his servants were indeed capable but bitter personal rivalries prevented all cooperation and though the extravagances of an opposition as unscrupulous as himself aided by his own coolness of head and cynical good temper afforded him before long an opportunity for establishing an apparently complete ascendancy in his kingdom it was an ascendancy maintained only by a scrupulous observance of conditions which he had now for nineteen years in vain endeavoured to evade the picture is heightened by contrast louis stood before europe upon a pinnacle of glory how he had used the instruments of ambition by which he found himself surrounded at the close of the wars of the fronde the renowned commanders the veteran troops the skilful diplomatists the great administrators among whom he stood the adored and unquestioned chief how with the people contented to be at length freed from the desolation of civil war and a treasury soon overflowing through the genius of colbert he had leaped at two bounds to a position which made him at once the admiration and the terror of europe how he had created navies and had sent out his armies north south and east to confront all europe in arms how he had defeated coalitions dictated treaties of peace pensioned kings and governments how he had not only baffled the jealousy of england but had even enlisted the might of her crown in support of aggressions which her people hated all this we have seen and like that of charles his european position was reflected in that which he held at home to his own people he was as a god his marshals and his armies knew no will but his word his ambassadors in every court carried out his commands with unfailing obedience after twenty years of imperial almsgiving and of war his treasury still to ordinary observers seemed overflowing to such purpose had he depressed the haughty noblesse of france that they who had been the rivals of the throne were now content to worship from the level of a common servitude all great offices the names of which recalled the days when the monarchy was still under restraint constable admiral and lieutenant-general were suppressed and the rest he took so literally into his own hands that in sixteen eighty one he put them up to public auction with the aid of the jesuits he defied the papacy and over the church his rule was absolute for every form of intellectual effort france was then famous religious oratory science art history literature and one and all were devoted to the glorification of the king and yet at this very time there was not far distant the happy combination of events which was to place a final check to his ambition in the breast of william of orange there glowed ever more intensely that unquenchable hatred of france which had received its last and fiercest expression in the desperate onset upon luxembourg's lines before mons within ten years he once more arrayed europe for the conflict but this time with a mightier following at his back england at length took her rightful place the man who in his own person represented the spirit of continental opposition to the aggressions of louis and the opposition of the english people to the french and popish policy of their own kings found himself enabled to let loose the hatred which thwarted so long had grown ever keener by repression the happiest day of william's life 
was probably that on which, as King of England, he declared war against France. On that day began the long and terrible course of retributive humiliations, which at length struck his lifelong antagonist to her knees and brought upon the great monarch an old age embittered by disappointment and care. End of section 30. Recording by Pamela Nagami in Encino, California, July 2018. End of the English Restoration and Louis the Fourteenth from the Peace of Westphalia to the Peace of Nijmegen by Osmond Airy.